Well, good morning. We'll get started. Uh, we're going to be looking in the book of Genesis, chapter 41, this morning. Uh, the uh, story we've been continuing through the Old Testament narrative is about the life of Joseph. And uh, today we're going to be looking at God's deliverance in a time of famine. Uh, in Genesis, chapter 41, we'll be focusing on uh, verses 37 to 57. And I hope that this has been an encouraging study so far as we've looked at the life of Joseph and uh, seen how God has been faithful in his life. I'm going to begin uh, with a word of prayer, and then we will jump right in. Father, thank you for this time this morning to gather as your people, the church. And Lord, we thank you for this time specifically to study this morning, to look at uh, the life of Joseph and how you were faithful to him, and how you continue throughout all generations to be faithful to all of your children, faithful to your covenant, to your great name, and to us as your people. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit now, that we would uh, see and comprehend and behold in uh, these scriptures the beauty of the gospel and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at Joseph uh, as he was a servant in the house of Potiphar. Um, He was stalked by Potiphar's wife uh, on multiple days, and then he was thrown in prison based on a lie, a fabrication. It was totally untrue, uh, but there was no place for truth there, and he was thrown into prison. It just so happened, uh, as we looked at last week, that uh, while he was in prison, um, two of Pharaoh's servants had dreams, and Joseph happened to be there at the right time. And as we did last week, I want to begin by asking you a few questions, and this morning, um, I'm going to focus a little bit on discouragement and maybe what you might call divine interruptions in our lives. Um, I want to ask you some questions about that as we begin, and then we'll look at this uh, passage in Genesis 41. The first question, do discouraging times disrupt your faith in God and steal your joy in worship? Do discouraging times disrupt your faith in God and steal your joy in worship? Number two, does your God, and I'm I'm using that pronoun, uh, your, on purpose there, um, does your God have the right to order your life so that he receives glory and you don't? Does your God have the right to order your life so that he receives glory in your life and you don't? And lastly, is your satisfaction, and in in, uh, parentheses, your joy, in Jesus predicated on your not going through hardship or difficulty? Is your satisfaction and joy in Jesus predicated on your not going through hardship or difficulty? We've been looking at the life of Joseph, and it's easy to look at pictures in the Old Testament, read narratives, and try to find a hero to emulate or a moral of the story, that this is what God is trying to teach us. So pattern your life after the hero, don't be like the villain in the story, or here's a moral, something you can learn and and maybe an axiom that you could live by, or teach your children, or maybe write on a bookmark. And what I think is helpful for us to remember and to point out is that these are Old Testament stories about real people and real lives. They, they walked a life of faith just like you and I do every day, what we're called to live. So th- this is not so much find a hero to emulate or a, a moral to live by. This is a story of how God is preserving a people for himself. Um, so I want to look at two things 
first this morning as we think about God's plan in Joseph's life. Yes, we're reading a narrative and we're down in the details of what's happening in his life, but there is an overarching plan, something that God is doing in his life. You remember for Joseph, um, a couple weeks ago, he was sold off by his brothers. He was a servant for a short time in the house of Potiphar. Then he was thrown into prison and then he was forgotten. Uh, chapter 40, verse 22 says, But the, he hanged the chief baker, speaking about the one who was in charge, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph was forgotten. He's in prison, and even the people that he helped with this gift that God had given him, they forgot him too. He had been given, according to God's plan, a gift of being able to interpret dreams. And he had repeated assurance throughout these chapters that we've looked at, that God is with him, that God's presence is with him by his spirit. He's not left Joseph alone, even though he is not in the land of his family. God is with him. And lastly, in verses 40 to 48, part of God's plan for Joseph is that he would have divine appointments, that he would have specific interactions with other people that would be God-ordained for God's purposes that they would continue in his family and in those that he would interact with. But I also want to look at God's enduring plan for Pharaoh, too. And I think these two things, seeing them together, it's important and helpful. You might say, well, Pharaoh was not a God-fearing man. Pharaoh believed he was God, in fact. So how is it that God has a plan for him? I want to point out a few things to you that I think are helpful to remember um, and also maybe a bit challenging for us, too. For Pharaoh, it was God's plan that he would perceive treachery from the baker and the cupbearer in chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Pharaoh was suspicious of them. He got upset and he threw them in prison. You might say, well, why is that providential? Why does that matter? It matters because in chapter 40, Joseph encounters these two men. They have troubling dreams and it just so happens that he interprets them and he tells them what the dreams mean. That's part of the plan. God, God put that in Pharaoh's path of walking in life so that they would interact with Joseph. And we'll see why later. He has Pharaoh himself in chapter 41, verses 1 through 8. And we'll read those in just a minute. Pharaoh himself had double dreams. And we said this a few weeks ago. When someone has two dreams, it's significant. It means that those are a message from God in the Bible. That he had two dreams. And lastly, Pharaoh himself had significant disappointment and desperation. What do I mean by that? He had significant disappointment because all of the wise people and all the magicians and everyone in his kingdom, this person who is the, the leader of the greatest kingdom in the world at that time, has nobody who can give him answers. All of the wise people and all the magicians can't do any, any speaking or any incantations that would give him an answer for what's troubling him on his bed. And he is desperate. And he's disappointed. And who does he go to? This slave in a slimy pit in his own jail is going to come and tell him what his dreams mean. All of this is part of God's enduring plan for Pharaoh and for Joseph and ultimately for uh, the nation of Israel, for, for Jacob and for the, the sons. So let's read together uh, Genesis chapter 40. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Excuse me, 41, 1 through 8. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, two full years of being forgotten. Joseph is in, in jail, has been forgotten. 
And behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up, and then after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly, gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second dream. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Let me ask you, who is it in the Bible and in this story? Who is it that interprets dreams? God God is the one who does it. Um, Isn't that exactly what Joseph said when he was in prison? When Joseph was in prison, and there would have been no reason for him necessarily to give glory to God. Um, No one was there who was going to listen. He wasn't in front of Pharaoh. But what does he say in chapter 40? He says... We In verse 8, they said to him, we each have a, had a dream and there is no interpreter of it. Nobody in prison. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. He understands God has given me this gift. It's, it's a burden to bear at the moment, but it is his to bear. God is the one who interprets dreams. So first we talked about God's enduring plan. Secondly, I want to talk about God's exaltation in, in this story. And there's a bit of it that's a situational uh, providence on everyone's part. Pharaoh did not find someone, even among his elites, who could tell him what his dreams meant. And we've said that it is God's gift to do that. There's a God-fearing Hebrew slave who understands dreams. He just happens to be living in Pharaoh's pit in prison. The cupbearer, this one who said, I'll, I'll go and tell uh, my boss, the one in charge, I'll tell him about you. I'll tell him all the good things that you did for me and what you were able to tell me. He only remembers Joseph two years later later when Pharaoh had a need. And maybe just a question, just an aside for just a moment. Have you ever been uh, dismayed in your heart because of something good that you did that before the Lord was an honest, good thing in humility and it was forgotten? wasn't remembered. Are you okay being maybe sometimes forgotten or seemingly left on the shelf even though you've done nothing but serve faithfully and honorably before the Lord? God left Joseph there for two years on purpose. This was part of his plan, his enduring plan to bring glory to himself to preserve this family. Secondly, God's exaltation for Joseph and from Joseph He is going to get glory in Joseph's life. He's teaching Joseph humility. In prison, he has nothing to lose or gain. But in chapter 40, verse 8, a few moments ago, we read that he gave glory to God as the only one who could interpret dreams. When he goes before Pharaoh with everything to lose, including his life. And maybe this is a little more risky than than we can really fathom. But when you were called to go before the Pharaoh... If you spoke or smelled or looked or or even made a sound that didn't please him, he could, with a word, have you put to death. So here is Joseph. Pharaoh sends word, get him cleaned up and bring him into my presence. And he stands there 
And he gives glory to God even in Pharaoh's presence. Chapter 41, verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. He's asked him, come here and interpret my dream. It's the reason I brought you here. Please do this. Tell me what it is that's distressing my soul. And Joseph says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And this is a a play on words of sorts because Pharaoh believes he is God. We've said that for the last two weeks. Pharaoh believes he was a God to be worshipped. The people were to listen to him and take his words. They were to, to be exalted words. And so here is Joseph. Um, Do you know who you're talking to, Joseph? You're standing before Pharaoh and you're telling him God will give him the answer. But Joseph also honors Pharaoh. He gives glory to God for revealing the future to him in chapter 41, verses 28 and 32. We'll look at those just briefly. In verse 28, this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. He honors Pharaoh by telling him, the God of heaven, the one who sits on the throne, who created all things, he has revealed to you, Pharaoh, what will happen in the future. Then in verse 32, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will surely bring it to pass. He continues to honor him by telling him, look, God showed you this. This wasn't just your dream. It isn't just something that troubles your soul. God is telling you what he's about to do in the world. And then later we see in the story, in, at the end of chapter 41, that all of Egypt and all the world came to Joseph for deliverance in a time of famine. It was significantly part of God's exaltation that Joseph would go through from being hated by his brothers, favored by his dad, he was a favorite, from being sold into slavery, being mistreated in Potiphar's house and thrown in prison and forgotten, and then standing in front of Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man in the world at the time. All of these things have been part of God's plan to exalt himself, not to exalt Joseph, not to say to us, if you will be a good Joseph, God will put you in places where you will be able to be exalted. And you might say, well, this sounds amazing for Joseph. And yet, I am sure that there were times that it was not. Where it was significantly discouraging and hard for him. But more about that in just a moment. I I said that the second point is about God's exaltation in the story, in this narrative. He will be exalted even by Pharaoh himself. It looks like, though I don't know that it is, it seems like Pharaoh speaks words that sound like he has faith. He recognizes the magicians and the seers had no authority or ability at all. He is unthreatened by God's power in his servant David, I mean, servant Joseph, so much so that he exalts Joseph above everyone else in his kingdom. And the only thing that he keeps from him is his own throne. That's the only thing. Consider God's covenant promises. As we think about this for just a moment, because it would seem like here is Joseph and he has hit the lottery. He went from being a hated brother among many brothers, a prisoner, to now being the second in command in the most powerful place in the whole world. He has made it. This is the American dream on steroids. He has everything. He has wealth. He has power. He is living in a beautiful place. But remember God's promise that he made to his people. Remember, we read it just a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 28. I want to look at these verses again just for a moment. 
Because I don't think it would be easy to say, well, here it is. This is what I should be working towards. I need to find a place where I can be in authority and power and have influence where my words mean something. Look in Genesis chapter 28. We read this a few weeks ago. Beginning in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So should Joseph have stood back and said, you know, I can forget the place that I left. I can forget the place where I was hated, where people didn't appreciate me for who I was. They didn't seem to give me the honor that is due someone who God has bestowed with such gifts. And look at what he's been given. It says here that Pharaoh gave him a land to rule over. He gave him a throne to sit on. He gave him a new name, an Egyptian name. He gave him a wife. So he is now royalty. He is in the family of Pharaoh by marriage. He gave him a robe, another robe, which is a significant sign in this story. And he gave him a ring. And so you might say, this is it. There is nothing else for Joseph to look for. There is nothing else that he should be thinking about. But in light of the promises that we just read in Genesis chapter 28, would you say that Joseph is now home, sitting on the throne It's second in command in Egypt. Is Joseph home? Some might say, well, it kind of looks like it. Why would you leave there? Why would you want to go away? But think about the promises that God made to Jacob. Think about the promises that we just read a few moments ago. He promised to give him a land and a name and an inheritance and a place with God. And he promised that even if you go away from here, you will be coming back here. This is a land that I am giving you. It belongs to you. So even though Joseph has been dispatched by God to go to the land of Egypt, this was not his home. He was to see this as part of his sojourning for a purpose. Does anybody remember what we said was the great purpose for why Joseph went to Egypt? And it's not to learn humility, though that was a a lesson for him. What was the purpose for why he went to Egypt? There was a worldwide event that was about to happen. He just told Pharaoh about that God showed Pharaoh. Judah. Judah, to, to preserve Judah. Because the world would be blighted by famine. For seven years they would experience plenty and abundance. And then for seven years there would be no harvest. And all of the world would then converge on Egypt because Joseph had a plan that would preserve food and preserve life. But it wasn't just so everybody would have a place to come eat. This was not communism on steroids. This was a a particular plan by God that Joseph would be there so that Jacob, the promised seed, excuse me, Judah, the promised seed, would be preserved. And we've looked at in the, in the Old Testament, who are the people who come in the line of Judah? Ultimately, who is it? 
the Lord Jesus. So here in, in this everyday ordinary story where it seems like Joseph is just a pawn that's being moved on the board in one place to another and at whoever's whim, he's set up or he's set down. He's thrown in a, in a well. He's put in prison. He's brought before Pharaoh. Then he's set on a throne. God, what are you doing with me? I, I'm all over the place. It's hard to keep up. And it, it is easy for us to say, Lord, what are you doing with my life? I'm up, I'm down, I'm healthy, I'm sick. Things are okay, they're not okay. I seem to have plenty, then I don't have enough. How in the world am I supposed to know which end is up in all of this? And so I want to go back to the question I asked just a moment ago. Um, Do discouraging times disrupt your faith in God and steal your joy in worship? And I'm going to kind of give an answer um, for, for us collectively that maybe... If it were possible, that could be true. But ultimately, as we look to the Lord in faith, it is possible to go through all of life and all of the things that Joseph went through and all the things that trouble you and keep you up at night and have you wondering and have you praying and have you questioning, Lord, what are you doing? It is possible to go through all of those things and though discouragement would would seek to pierce your soul, you can trust in the living God. You can have faith and hope that He's doing what He promised to do. That He's preserving you and building up your faith. Here, Pharaoh is functioning on behalf of God's great promises. He is God's instrument. He puts Joseph in a place to be God's instrument of preservation through great famine. And I want to read just a couple verses from the book of Daniel. And I don't want to get into the narrative of Daniel, but just simply to point to this fact that Pharaoh is a, an instrument in God's hand. The kings of the earth are instruments in God's hand. Daniel chapter 2 beginning in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. These were words in Daniel about that specific time and place. But they absolutely do speak to what he was doing through Joseph in Egypt. He was, he was choosing to display his wisdom in what he chose to do there. Proverbs chapter 21, you probably know this by heart, but I, I want to read it. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Pharaoh is God's pawn. God is using him for his own purposes that he would preserve his people. I want to ask you this morning not to moralize this story, but to ask you uh, to consider how God delivers you. How does God deliver you? How does he preserve your faith? How does he preserve your family? And I want to illustrate this with a, a very brief story about a man from the 17 and 1800s named Charles Simeon. He was a seminary student. He, he was a very studied man. And when he took his very first pastorate, the, the man who had been the the, the pastor at Trinity Church near Cambridge. The man had been there many years. He was very beloved. 
And he came in and took his position. The people of the church did not like him. They wanted someone else to be there, the assistant pastor. They were hoping that he would become the pastor. But the bishop told Charles Simeon, even if you didn't take this position, that man that they want is not going to be the minister here. I have already decided that. It's not going to be the case. So the people at this church were not to be outdone. At that time, they had doors on the pews. And so there were people who were pew bearers. And they would decide whether or not you could go into your pew. And they would open the door for you, literally. So you would come in, you would walk up the aisle, and they would welcome you in. Or not. And the people who were the pew bearers said, no, we're not going to let anyone in. So Charles Simeon decided at his own expense, okay, I understand. So I'm going to put chairs in the aisles. And one of the, one of the folks in the church at that time decided, no, we're not going to have these. And so on a Sunday morning in, before worship, he went and grabbed all the chairs and threw them out in the churchyard. And this man, he, he, just, he went through hardship. He was a pastor. He wanted to love his congregation. He wanted to be able to minister to them. And he had other battles that he, he went through as well with them. People tried to oppose him. They, they threw stones through the windows, rocks through the windows, and shattered them. And they had a, an evening Bible study. And the previous minister had led the evening Bible study. And he approached the the leadership of the church about continuing that Bible study. And they said, sure, we'll continue it. But we're not going to have you do it. We want the assistant who we wished had had your job. We want him to do it. So for five years, they had him teach the Sunday afternoon Bible study. When he decided it was time for him to move on and go to another church, he went back. The pastor did, Charles Simeon. And they said, no, we've hired somebody else to do it. We don't want you to do it. So for 12 years... This minister at this church was very discouraged because for his first 12 years, they never had him teach the Sunday afternoon Bible study, never had him be a part of it. He wanted to love them. And and so I I want to share some words with you uh, from this is from the Roots of Endurance, um, Invincible Perseverance in the Lives of John Newton, Charles Simeon and William Wilberforce. But this is by John Piper. Um, said, when the members of the congregation locked the pews and kept them locked for over ten years. So this wasn't just a couple Sundays. Simeon said, in this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this. The servant of the Lord must not strive, 2 Timothy 2.24. It was painful indeed to see the church with the exception of the aisles almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing... To the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited only to half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection, I should have sunken deep under my burden. During these years while he struggled there at the church, he also went through some opposition at the university where he was a teaching fellow and people were horrible and and mean to him and, and said some very difficult things. And he says, one striking witness to, to this um, abiding presence of God during this time of discouragement, when people at the university were especially cold and hostile to him, he says, I was an object of much contempt and derision in the university. I strolled forth one day, buffeted and afflicted, with my little testament in my hand. I prayed earnestly to my God that he would comfort me with cordials from his word, and that on opening the book, 
I might find some text which should sustain me. It was not for direction I was looking, for I am no friend to such superstitions, but only for support. The first text which caught my eye was this. They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. You know, Simon is the same name as Simeon. What a word of instruction was there. What a blessed hint of my encouragement. To have the cross laid upon me that I might bear it after Jesus, what a privilege. And it was enough. Now I could leap and sing for joy as one whom Jesus was honoring with a participation in his sufferings. If you have a question about what is it that God is doing in my life and if discouragement grips your heart like a vice and will not let it go and you say, God, what are you doing? You can answer, He is using your life for His glory. And to the extent that you walk through sufferings, you may know that you have a participation in the sufferings of Christ. I don't mean if you do things and suffer the consequences of bad choices. I do mean as God brings those things in your life, as He walks you through difficult valleys and difficult times, and maybe even away from what is comfortable and normal and what you would call home, God is working in your life. He hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you in Egypt. He hasn't left you in the deep, dark valleys. That's why the psalmist could say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Because it is in those moments that God is with us. He doesn't leave us. So how does God deliver you? I told you that we would spend the last bit of our time talking about this. And I am thinking about two words that we read last week from Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Does anybody remember the two, there are two ways that God, uh, that people believe we find purpose in the world. Uh, There are two ways. There's one that says there is an external purpose to you. You don't create it on your own. It was created for you and you have to find it and live in subjection to it. It's called uh, mimesis. That's the, the philosophical word. The second word is, no, that's not true. Um, you actually determine your worth and your identity and your destiny. All of that's in your own hands. It's on your shoulders to figure it out. Uh, that word is poiesis. So mimesis and poiesis. And so as we look at this in the life of Joseph, can you, can you tell me what it seems like he's grasping for? Which one of these? It seems like he's giving glory to God. That he's seeing that this is part of the plan that he has for my life. He's not there trying to make a name for himself. Both times in chapter 40 and 41, he told the two servants of Pharaoh, and he told Pharaoh himself in Pharaoh's court while Pharaoh was sitting on his throne. He told him, these interpretations come from God. They don't come from me. This isn't something on my own. So how does God deliver you? I think number one, He delivers us by supplanting the pride of our heart in the presence of the true king. There is nothing in the world that can break the pride of someone's heart. Absolutely nothing. Even even harsh words or strong words, even a good argument, or maybe even a convincing phrase is not going to melt the pride of the human soul. Only being in the presence of the true king will do that. As we see, as God's people, as we see Jesus as beautiful, as the Savior, we're forced to deal and speak honestly about sin. There's nothing in the world that, else in the world that will make you do that. 
Jesus alone does that. So as parents, and, and I, I hate to, to, to go here so quickly, uh, but maybe not. As parents, I think this is incredibly freeing. And you say, well, what does that mean? What do you mean this is incredibly freeing? I believe it's incredibly freeing because as we struggle and weep over the sin we see in our children, we can say, no matter, um, no matter the amount of shouting or, or lectures or punishments or anything else, will help them to melt in their hearts except for the Lord Jesus. Nothing. If you and your spouse are, are not seeing eye to eye, no amount of lectures or cold shoulders or difficult conversations are going to make peace. Only as you are both looking to Jesus will those things go away. If you see him and you see your sin, it will melt your heart. Humility is the only response we can have in, the, in our Savior's face. Worship is our proper response to God for the grace that he richly gives us. And when you see that, then you stop demanding everything from everyone else. But otherwise, you will continue to demand it and exact it from everyone around you. Do you know that to be true in your own heart? Do you know that to be true, that that's why there's such a rise in you if it seems that your honor has been tainted by someone's harsh words or your character has been challenged in a way that is ungodly? If you are not sitting beneath the throne of your Savior under the word of God, you will very quickly grasp for your honor to be established and for respect to be given to you. Because if you're on the throne, you have to have it. But if you are not on that throne, if Jesus is, then you can even have happen what happened in Joseph's life and you can still give glory to God no matter where he puts you. And I know that some of you live there because we've talked about it. And I know that it's painful and hard and that some days faith is, is nothing more than a cry or tears or weeping. But even in that, the Lord Jesus He is absolutely with you. Secondly, how does God deliver you? How does God deliver his children? He sanctifies the path of our feet. I believe that Joseph was walking a sanctified path because God had ordered his steps. He was going exactly where God had chosen for him to go. Uh, Turn, if you will, to Psalm 56. I just want to read a few verses there. This is point number two, how God sanctifies the path of our feet. Psalm 56. And I'm going to read 8 through 13, but the whole psalm applies here. Beginning in verse 8, Psalm 56. You number my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is with me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. 
Have you not kept my feet from failing that I might walk before God in the light of the living? Those words are true. Your tears, your pain, all of the difficulty, any struggles that you go through, and true heartache. I don't necessarily mean just little things throughout the day, though I do mean those. But I mean heartache that lasts for years and years, that encompasses multiple relationships and many events, and somewhat changes your relationship with family or friends, people that you thought you could count on. I mean those things specifically. Those things Jesus is still in charge of the path of your feet, even in them. And I want to ask, maybe as a last question, and then look at one other verse before we finish. How God delivers you. How do you know know that that is a, a final and full thing? That it's not something that is just simply passing away? How do you know that it's not just for an event? God's taking care of this, but I don't know if I can have faith to believe He'll take care of me in the long run. I know He took care of this problem, but I don't know that He knows what's going to happen tomorrow, and I'm not sure that He's good and that He'll still be there for me. Do you ever have those questions in your mind? Maybe you don't formulate them that way, but they, they surface in the, in the presence of fears. I just don't know. This is out of control, or I'm out of control. I think the answer to that, the antidote to that, is looking to the truth of Scripture and seeing. And this is, I mean, this is an absolute statement. You have to look at the truth of Scripture and see what He was willing to do to make you part of His family. If you look at the life of Joseph and say, wow, He took Joseph's life, the best years of his life, away. He had a foreigner for a wife. And his job was to serve a man that didn't give glory to God. How is it possible that that could be the life that God wants for one of his children? The youth of his life was spent wasting away in prison. And then you look at your own life and say, God, this is what you wanted for me? This is what you wanted for my life? Knowing that I might live maybe 80 to 85 years or 100 years at best, and this is how you wanted to spend it? God, I've got to tell you, if I had 100 years to spend and I could choose how to spend them, I would do it differently. And I would bring glory to you in different ways. But here he is saying, this is how I'm spending your life because I'm writing a story that you can't see except through the eyes of faith. And I'm writing a story willing to pay the price with Joseph Because there's one coming after him who would sacrifice in ways that you cannot imagine. And I'm doing that so that I will bring you into my family. Not just to preserve Judah, but to preserve you. Isaiah 53 verse 10, it says that he was crushed for us. That the iniquity of our sins was laid upon him and that by his stripes we are healed. You say, how could you spend the life of the Son of God that way? How is it possible that it was God's best plan to bring Jesus in the world only to want to kill Him? But then look at the questions that you ask in your own life and say, God, do you really want to bring this into my life? Is this really how to receive glory? If you start there, I think you will begin doubting God. You will doubt His goodness 
his steadfastness and his faithfulness. But if you start where we were just talking about, that he is writing a story and he's even using your life to do it, and that the backdrop of that story is the glory of himself in the person of Jesus Christ, then no matter what he brings into your life, you know that he will take care of you because what did he do for Jesus after he crushed him? He raised him from the dead and he gave him a name that is greater than any other name. That at that name every knee would bow and tongue would confess that he is Lord. And if he did that to preserve our souls, to deliver us from our sins and from death and from hell forever, then absolutely he has a right and the only one who has a right to choose how to order lives. And he can bring glory to himself however he chooses. So that's our lesson today, God's deliverance in famine. Are there any, any questions or, or comments? Let me just ask you then, um, and this could be a real-life example for you, um, or it could just be um, a thought that comes to mind, scriptural or godly thought that comes to mind. How do you, how do we as the body of Christ, speak truth in love to one another when a, a dear friend, brother or sister in Christ, is going through great difficulty? How do we encourage them in a way that doesn't dismiss what they're going through, um, that affirms them in, in the pain, but helps them to be able to transcend past that, to see, see beyond the current real hurt? To see that the Lord is working. How do, how do we do that? Anybody? I think it's always good, and I've always believed that your testimony is your best, um, mm. your best consolation for someone, or your best, um, not necessarily advice, but shows you how God got you through something. Mm-hmm. So just knowing someone that has... You know, like when Harold died, it's like just trying to find someone that has experienced the pain that mom's going through and mm-hmm. that can to sympathize with her but can say, this is how God brought me through it and he can do this with you too. Mm-hmm. So using your testimony, I think, to be able to say, this is how he worked in me. Mm-hmm. He can do the same with you. you know, we will get through this. Um, mm-hmm. This is not the end of everything. You're not the only one who ever experienced this. Yeah. So, I mean, whether it's raising children, you know, loss of a spouse, going through um, an alcoholic husband, whatever, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I think there are people out there um, mm-hmm. that have gone through it, and God has worked through those circumstances. So, um, and just being on the other side sometimes and being able to speak to someone and use your testimony to encourage them. So. The Bible says, comfort one another with the comfort with which you have been comforted. What else? I think maybe one thing I'd add to that, um, to be careful not to one-up somebody when hoping to encourage them. Oh, well, that is painful, but you don't know what pain is. Let me tell you about what happened in my life. I think that can do great harm, right? Um, One-upping somebody because maybe their pain is not as significant as something else. That's the only thing I think I would add to, to what Karen was sharing. Anybody else? How can we speak into one another's lives with hope and encouragement? 
Maybe, uh, maybe another question, should we? Should we do that? Do we have the right to do that with one another? Mm. God calls us, even though it's uncomfortable, it might take us out of our comfort zone. But um, like what Charles Simon did, he went to God's Word. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when we should always mm-hmm. open and take people. And as he said, you know, he just partook in the sufferings of Christ. Mm-hmm. And you know that that was joy for the joy that was set before him in the cross, looking to Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. So knowing that in this life we will have hardship, but. But I think there is some fear there for us. And maybe this is part of the enemy. It could just be us being too focused on us in the midst of not wanting to be awkward or not wanting to oops, say the wrong thing. I, I was hoping to come love you and now I've just created a storm because I couldn't get the right words out. But I, I just telling someone you're not invisible. I know that you're going through pain. I, I, I don't have anything that I can say to make this better. But I am praying. I'm here for you. I see you. And I truly am sorry. Robert Ramsey was a practitioner of just showing up and being there for you. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was a godsend for a lot of people. And he didn't have to say anything. He was just there. Didn't say a word. I mean, it'd be a two-hour visit in the hospital. And he might have awakened and he was gone. But he was there for you. To be a true friend, it's okay to just sit. Awkward silence is not bad. It's okay. I think Joe wish you had a few of those, right? Yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with friends like he had, there was no need for enemies in his life. Well, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time this morning in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we think about... Uh, living in this fallen world and knowing that on every Sunday morning when we take prayer requests in assembly, that there are multiple requests even in in the room that aren't spoken. And throughout our church, uh, folks who are hurting and who are grieving and suffering loss in ways that they may not be able or feel comfortable to talk about, but they are. And Lord, I pray that you would use us, the body of Christ, to function the way that you designed us to. That we would love one another, even if it is just to say, I see you, I love you, and I'm praying. Lord, help us through our own griefs to be able to comfort others. And may we point one another to Christ, not simply to to exalt suffering or grief, but point one another to Christ and say, reach out to the Lord, pray, ask him to give you answers and to sustain you with hope. And Lord, I pray that you would do that in our midst. Uh, not only to to comfort us, but also to glorify yourself in this body, the church. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.